Tonight we continue our sermon series called The Unnamed. This from the Gospel according to St. Mark. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, surely this man was God's son. One of the more prominent among the important but unnamed characters in the biblical narrative is the centurion at Golgotha the day Jesus died. He was the commander of the execution detail in Jerusalem at Passover time in 27 AD. It was at his orders that his soldiers pinned Jesus' wrists and ankles to rough timbers with railroad spikes. But then when Jesus dies a mere six hours, uh, after a mere six hours on the cross, he is the one, too, who lets loose with the most extravagant confession in the entire New Testament. Surely 
This man was God's son, he ventures, after watching the way Jesus died, forgiving his enemies, welcoming a sinister gangster into paradise, and handing his soul over to God. That's all the Bible tells us about the centurion, that he was responsible for a crucifixion and then a confession. Shortly after the execution, he disappears from the stage of history and is never heard from again. But when the Bible is lean and spare in its details, I like to spin my own kind of rich biography of these biblical characters, kind of like an actor who disappears completely and deeply into his private imagination to concoct a rich and dense backstory for a character he's going to play on stage or screen. And so this is the way I see it about this centurion at Golgotha. A Roman centurion was in command of a small platoon or company in the Roman army. The Latin word centurion, of course, is related to the word century. So typically, a centurion was in charge of a company or a platoon of 100 men, though in practice, the size of that little company would range from 30 to 100. In my mind's eye, this centurion at Golgotha is 50 years old, and he's near the end of his career. He's been fighting Caesar's wars for 30 years, and he survived a score of bloody skirmishes with fierce barbarians wielding eight-foot pikes. This execution detail in Jerusalem is meant to be his sunset posting, his last posting before he retires to fruity drinks on the beaches of Naples. Featherbed duty, keeping the peace like a paltry policeman in one of the empire's distant outposts, far from both the peace of Rome and the fierce action on the European front. You could identify a Roman centurion by the impressive transverse uh, crest on the top of his helmet, which went sideways from ear to ear rather than forward from neck to brow. They comprise the tough, reliable spine of the Roman army. They led their companies, their centuries, always from the front. And when the barbarians of Europe saw these Roman centurions charging into battle with flashing armor and shocking purpose, a rumor would drift up and down the lines among those barbarians that the Roman legionnaires were being led into battle by the gods themselves. Centurion was the highest rank an enlisted man could achieve in the Roman army. I don't know what equivalent rank that is with an American army, but maybe from gunnery sergeant to major, whichever officer is in charge of and responsible for a small company or platoon of about 100 people, like maybe Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump or Captain Miller from Saving Private Ryan or Major Winters from Band of Brothers, or Captain Willard from Apocalypse Now, or Sergeant Elias from Platoon, or Sergeant Howell from Hacksaw Ridge. Hollywood is in love with guys like these. If Hollywood wants to tell a war story, it tells that story through the eyes of a brave and noble commander like Captain Miller from Saving Private Ryan. 
So that's this guy, this centurion at Golgotha. First he crucified him, and then he confessed him. Surely this man was God's son, he ventures. Some scholars think he said it sarcastically, with a sneer. This is God's son? Yeah, right, give me a break, would you? Personally, I don't think so. I think he meant it. But even if he said it derisively, he told the truth, right? And his truth has stood century after century, everlasting to everlasting. Surely this man was God's son. Well, that's all from the Gospel of Mark. St. John tells the story a different way. St. John tells us that when the three death row inmates have been hanging from their respective crosses for six straight hours and the Roman soldiers had gotten tired of watching the spectacle and wanted to adjourn to the tavern, they took a sledgehammer to the kneecaps of the two thieves to hasten the inevitable. But then when they got to Jesus, this proved to be unnecessary because he was already gone. And St. John tells us that a soldier lanced his side with a spear to confirm that he was already gone. St. John doesn't call him a centurion like Mark. St. John calls him a soldier. But from the very beginning, Saint, the, the, the Christian church has thought that St. John's soldier is the same guy as Mark's centurion. Neither Mark nor John give this centurion at Golgotha a name, but since the 6th century, the Christian church has called him Longinus which is a Latin name coming from a Greek word for spear. A soldier gets his name from his weapon. Longinus is, quite literally, a spear chucker. He's become a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Some call him the first Christian because he was the first to confess Jesus publicly who Jesus really was in the core of his being, God's very own son. If you've been to Rome, you've seen the impressive statue in the crossing at St. Peter's Basilica. It'll make you weep to see this violent, bloody soldier holding his lance aloft in Christendom's most important cathedral a stone's throw away from the holy altar of the Prince of Peace himself. And his weapon, they call it the holy lance or the spear of destiny. And behind the holy grail itself, the cup Jesus used at his last supper with his disciples, after the holy grail itself, the Holy Lance is Christianity's most sacred relic because it once, once touched his holy, life-giving blood. It still has the power to heal, they say. In the legends of King Arthur, it can heal the mortally wounded. And in the opera Parsifal, perhaps the greatest ever written, Richard Wagner has the Holy Lance be the device that churns the sprawling plot. Surely this man was God's son. Mark tells us that the centurion stood facing him. It's a vivid tableau, isn't it? 
this violent, bloody centurion symbol for Tiberius Caesar himself, the most important, powerful man the world had ever seen with his invincible empire and teeming legions and imperial decree. And then there he hangs, the crucified Christ, the defenseless God, pitiful and yet pitying till the end. It's strange what wins the world, yes? He's earned our trust and our respect and our blind obedience, not because of magnificent might, but because of fragile, defenseless love. It's the greatest miracle God ever wrought.